Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Okay. So we stop doing the announcer voice now, or are you going to do the whole show like I'm going to do the whole show like this. So it's Batman and Eric do Christopher and Eric's. Because it takes me a lot of work to get to the Batman voice, because mostly I sound like this. No, you don't. <laughs> That's how I hear myself in my head. Have you seen the Alec Baldwin Saturday Night Live sketch where he tries to record his own voicemail? And, he's, and they play it back, and he sounds gayer and gayer each time, no matter how masculine. And then by the end, it's a drag queen playing the part of his voice, That's his really recorded funny. voice. It's a statement on toxic masculinity is what it is. We need to look at it through a contemporary lens. It's a problematic sketch. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's the comedy routine that made me cry. <laughs> That's all podcasts. Right. All podcasts. Okay. We begin today with an apology from me to my co-host, Eric Shaw. And anyone else who we tricked into watching this movie. But listen, I'm going to delay the apology with a fiery and appropriately sanctimonious statement, which is, we have been doing the True Crime uh, Movie Time Summer Film Festival for several months now. Yes. Timed roughly to coincide with actual summer here in the United States, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and we have encountered a dearth, if you will, of higher-end, sophisticated films that are inspired by real-life true crime cases. What we found was a, a sea of one. <laughs> Eric just held up his finger to say we found one. A sea of really um, low-quality biased, shallow TV movies. And I would say, even where that hasn't been the case, one of the things that I think has maybe been lost in the mists of time um, is that 
part of the idea of this was to point out the way in which these crimes are not being accurately mm-hmm. depicted in the movies. And I think we have really made the case for that. <laughs> That's really true. But it involved us watching some really terrible movies. But some of them were like big Big time successful Hollywood films like mm-hmm. The Untouchables was ridiculous mm-hmm. and a complete, you know, inappropriate and in, inaccurate depiction of the circumstances of that particular um, crime syndicate, crime murderer, that whole yeah. investigation. And because it was really more about the investigators than it was about the criminals anyway. And even that was completely inaccurate and and unrealistic and yes. and not i thought particularly fair to anybody i just it really does surprise me that as little goes into the recreation of those crimes well, you know, i know you have to change things to make them into a movie but sometimes this one i i just think was developed to promote the career of the guy who wrote that book. This this movie doesn't oh, even have anything to we're, do we're gonna get with the Green River it. Killer. This is yes. not a movie about the Green River Killer. Oh, yeah. there is a, What we did find in the movie, there's not much to this movie, which is called The River Man. We discovered, I discovered as it began to play, and I began to simultaneously look at the IMDb page, that it was a TV movie where I had promised you. We rejected another TV movie that's tangentially related to what we're going to talk about today because we knew it was a TV movie and the clips looked bad. But this is also a statement on the changing treatment of true crime in popular culture that it used to be that if you wanted any sort of address of true crime in pop culture, it was going to be a hackneyed made-for-TV movie on NBC that was going to possibly accurately valorize the investigators who closed the case or whatever. But there were no true crime podcasts. There weren't deep dives that... Most of what was happening that was sophisticated with true crime was in print. There were, there were really good books being written in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then they got more salacious, and they got edged out by ID. There he and was. Got, and then they got... And then they, <laughs> and they got... But my apology is it's, it was a TV movie, and I didn't think it was, and I sold you on it. So I'm, I'm very sorry, Eric. Also, if you're trying to watch it for yourself, you should bear in mind that despite the fact that it is not a compound word... The River Man. The River Man is... One word in this stupid title, because in keeping with everything else stupid about this stupid movie, which I think is based on a book. Okay. um, It's just, uh, yeah, like River Man is not a compound word. River Man is not a thing. (laughs) Let's focus on the important part. Mermaid. Well, this is a a pet peeve of mine, because there are things like game show— Mm-hmm. That should be that should be a compound word because a game and a show are not the same thing as a game show. Yeah. And next door, I can't believe next door is not a compound word. It's not the next door. It is a much more sort of general kind of description of something. Next door does not mean the mm-hmm. next door, right. literally, which is what a non-compound word would indicate. <laughs> whereas a compound word would be next door. I just I don't know what goes into the decision on what gets to be a compound word. <laughs> But you would like a but say. But I would like I would like a say, or I would at least like an explanation from somebody. I want to speak to somebody. I want to speak to the manager. Because, like, for heaven's sakes, yeah, the river man. <laughs> I, 
have to say, all things put aside, technically it was it did not end up being as bad a movie as I thought it was going to be, largely because Carrie Elwes delivers a pretty great performance as Ted Bundy. And if you let go of any expectation that it's going to have anything to do with the Green River Killer. But let, let's do, we do sort of a different format with the movies than we do with the documentaries. We don't go through blow by blow. Let me summarize the, the basics of this. Sure. The movie sells itself as a sort of, this is the real inspiration for the Silence of the Lambs storyline. This is going to show you the moment when investigators in the Green River Killer case consulted Ted Bundy, who was incarcerated at the time, and got all of this pivotal whatever. Uh, they didn't get anything out of Ted Bundy. And none of that happens in this movie. And they got played by Ted Bundy, who was just trying to get a stay of execution and sort of allegedly giving them a psychological profile of Ridgeway. And they got played by this completely unscrupulous investigator who was really using the Green River Killer as a way to get a confession from Ted Bundy for crimes that he didn't get to solve because he wanted credit for right. busting Ted Bundy, which he didn't get because Ted Bundy got busted in Florida for crimes they could actually convict him of. Exactly. Exactly, and he was the Seattle investigator, and so that was the Bundy Pacific Northwest. So this Nightmares movie was connection. about the ego of what was that guy's name? Okay, Kipple. I didn't because I got distracted by the ego of the other guy, uh, Bob Kipple was his name. He was a former detective. Um, so what jumped out at me immediately was that the Seattle detective on the Green River case, who's depicted here as the younger, more aggressive, ego-driven guy. By a really cute actor. By a really cute actor. God, he was really cute. He was really we do cute. Have to have, we are still gay and doing yeah. a podcast, so we have to have yeah. a moment like, for cute it actors. Was, it was all three of them, Greenwood yeah. and uh, Elwes and the actor who played. Who did yeah. the... Let's, let's let's give him full credit. His, <laughs> let's focus his, on what we liked. We're trying to be his positive. His name is Sam Yeager. Yeah, Sam Yeager, man. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes, they were all, it was very tasty. It was really, it was, yeah, that, that, yep. that was the good part of this movie. That's it. Okay, but what jumps out at me first is, who is this Seattle detective and why did he appear nowhere in the hour and a half documentary on the Green River case we watched and discussed on the last episode? So I started doing some digging, and it turned out, I thought, as we saw a lot with these movies, oh, he's a composite person. I'm going to search for his name, and nothing's going to come up. That's not the case. I did search for his name, and what I found is that his name is Gary Reichert, as it is in the movie. He is a right-wing Republican politician who has built his career on the false narrative that he solved the Green River case. Which he did not. Which he did not, because he did not, in fact, believe Gary Ridgway was the killer when Ridgway was arrested, as we discussed last week, and then eventually let go because the search warrant didn't yield any smoking gun evidence. He was not, in fact, responsible for sending the trace evidence that had been collected at that time out for DNA forensic analysis when the technology had caught up with the evidence. And he was responsible for collecting the, the DNA evidence that ultimately convicted him in the first place, which Kepler even tries to take credit for yeah. in this fictitious work that's based on his book, which I assume is fictional. So the other TV movie that we dismissed was really a piece of propaganda. It starred Tom Cavanaugh, the actor, as Gary uh, Record. And it was a plank of his political campaign in 2008 to run for statewide office for the first time, which unfortunately was successful, which also included him in his campaign literature, a picture of him posing at one of the crime scenes. I reached out to a friend of mine in the Pacific Northwest area who shall remain nameless because she didn't give me <laughs> permission to quote her. But she said, this guy is currently running for governor, and if he wins, I'm going to move. <laughs> So 
That's the movie story behind the movie The River Man that I unearthed. So but... this is complete bullshit. Yeah. That's our that's our big that's our headline. This is about the egos of a couple of men and the lies of a couple of men as they seek to take credit for something they had nothing to do with. Because the the detectives that we met last week, one we met an investigative journalist, Tomas Gillian, and he is quoted in one of these articles as saying, Reichert is just a complete fraud. He didn't solve, he was actually a hindrance. What he got a rep reputation for on the case was being very emotional and good with the victim's families, which is a skill. But the other detective said it didn't have anything to do with the investigation. That is a psycho. It was he was good at politics and glad handing. He had good bad side, bedside manner. Bedside manner, which is great. And that's an important skill in certain professions. But he did not solve the Green River killer case. In fact, he was a hindrance and he got tunnel vision and he didn't believe it was Ridgeway, as we said earlier. But the detectives we met last week were a black woman. I don't want to assume the other one seemed like maybe she had a wife named Marsha at home. I'm just going to say she presented as very butch, um, you know, and a detective named Mark Haney, who was actually convinced it was Ridgeway and who I think you believe detected actually did the saliva the, swab. And the one who actually solved the crime, the one yeah. who the other detectives actually said in the special, I believe, is a shot across Reichert's bow mm-hmm. that this is the man who solved the crime because he collected this evidence that we were able to then use. And they also presented the other guy who did the tests. Right, absolutely. Um, none of them were this guy who was played by a really tasty young actor. But, but we can be but distracted by that, Eric. But, we but have to stay strong. this is a fraud. So yes. this is a complete <laughs> fraud, and it's really about um, the the Bruce Greenwood character interviewing Ted Bundy. yes. And not about the Green River Killer at all. That's almost incidental to the rest of the story. The only thing they'd glance across is, oh, and get a cheek swab, because you never know when how that but when that'll come in and the show helpful him, in the future. They show Reichert proudly getting the cheek swab and almost making eye contact with the camera as he leaves the room. And it's like that didn't happen. He no. didn't take that swab. And he didn't believe that this was the guy. He wouldn't have even been in favor of doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, everything about it was just Complete crap. Okay, there's another thing that happened last week that I think we need to discuss. I think it's really important. One of the things we (laughs) forgot to mention last week was as a part of the overall coverage of the crime in the documentary, there was an inclusion of a reporter from Channel 4 in... um, there in Seattle, I assume. Yes. Um, Channel Four said on his microphone, but I don't know. And they didn't ID him. And I don't know if he is a gay man, but he is a huge queen. And I was really, like, kind of jolted out of my seat by him. And we tried. We searched we high and low. Find- so him. if you are... We'll post his picture on the Facebook page as part of the Wednesday question. We'll yeah. do a, yeah, we'll do yeah. a... Um, there a, is a serpent the in the Garden of Eden, he said as he walked down a wooded roadway. Let's just put it... This, I think we can phrase it this way. We don't want to assume he's gay, but he's gay enough that we want to have lunch with him. How's that? That's a nice way of putting Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yes. And, uh, you know, we don't think that that's actually a mean thing to say about no. somebody. So, mm. we, you know, I'm sorry yeah. if we put anybody off, but... Um, no, no gay panic. That's no longer no. an excuse. Um, uh-uh. But yeah, it's he just was really this huge, very queeny um, reporter, and I was like, "Who is that?" Yes, and we couldn't figure it out. So if you know who the huge queenie, he's at twenty-two minutes in to the episode. There's a little clip of him talking the about the episode we discussed last week, the- which is called "Green River Killer: Mind of a Monster," streamable on Max. 
a.k.a. HBO Max. So if you want to see him in, you know, up on his feet and talking, then that's the place to look. And then if you would please, please post it on the page right to us. Somehow communicate with us if you know who this guy is. Because we were really, we thought, wow, okay. So yeah. there was there was Queens in the newsroom um, back, in, back in the day. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever ebooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. So this is a movie built on lies. That's what we've established. Well, I, I think it is a, it's dissembling. Like, the, mm-hmm. this is a movie, this is really a movie about how um, this detective Kepler, I'm going to call him because that's her couple or whatever, who yeah. wrote the book that the movie is based on, right. hijacked this investigation and its resources to try and make good on an earlier failure in his own career to convict Ted Bundy of crimes that he was actually guilty of. Right. He convinced them that they were um, going to be able to get great insight into the mind of a serial killer back to our earlier discussion of that possibly fictional approach to crime investigation. Mm -hmm. Um, But by interviewing Ted Bundy, to get a, to try and get an accurate picture of who this guy was so that they would then know who to investigate because the problem that they had with the Green River Killer for low those many years, it took them 20 years to bring him to justice, was they didn't know who to look for. Yeah. There was literally no information at all. And since they ignored the people who actually gave them the only information they ever got mm-hmm. other than the DNA evidence, they completely blew the investigation and really were just sort of trying, hoping for a break and really not much else in terms Mm -hmm. of task force be damned. That was really their strategy was we hope we get a break and they didn't get one. Right. So this guy convinced them that their break would be that Ted Bundy would be able to describe this guy for them in a way that they could look for it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he was lying to them, and that isn't put out in this. This is the wife kind of calls him on it, and mm-hmm. there's some sort of allusion to it. And maybe he was kidding himself. But even the the author of the book, at least as he's depicted in this, never really admits it to himself. But the only reason he's doing this is to try and get Ted to confess to these crimes that he was that he failed to close these cases that he failed to close mm-hmm. in Washington in and around Seattle. Right before they can execute him in Florida for the crimes that they were actually able to convict him of because they proved it. Right. Because he felt, you know, I don't know, because of its ego. If memory serves, Bundy initiates the, the contact with a letter sent to the Keppel, Keppel guy saying, I can help you. Do you think that's true? 
I didn't check the facts on that. But, I have no idea. Yeah. And it may be, and it may be that that's how he started it, but it doesn't change his motive for right. doing it. And I think it is inaccurately depicted in this. Right. Um, that he, because this was clearly ego driven. This had nothing to do. The thing that is really almost laughable about this movie is the Green River Killer is almost not in it. Yes. There's a moment early on where they, the, the bad bust where they, mm -hmm. uh, they do a flashback and they get these two guys claim credit for getting the cheap swab, which neither of them got mm -hmm. that ultimately convicted him. And then we don't see him again until the last two or three minutes of the movie when the cheek swab is tested, and that's really only as a kind of um, throwaway. Right. It's like just kind of a an incidental scene at the movie. The big takeaway from the movie and the big thing in the movie is he does ultimately get Ted Bundy to confess mm -hmm. to the crimes and with enough detail that they can actually... Um, they can actually connect the crimes to him and, and call him guilty for the crimes on the cases that he was unable to solve mm -hmm. and give the family some peace, which I'm not averse to that. Right. But I think if they had owned that mm -hmm. as part of telling the story, it would have been a more interesting story to right. me. Yeah. Because all the while it's somehow about, you know, he's going to help them solve and he just literally does absolutely Nothing to help them solve the Green River Killer case. Nothing. Not one thing, because he didn't have anything to do with the cheek swab. Even that's bullshit. Right. Like, yeah. all of that is just complete ego-driven bullshit to justify what he did. The thing that is the most remarkable about the movie is Carrie Elwes' performance yes. and that sequence where he does ultimately break him down in interviewing him mm -hmm. to get him to tell the story of... The crimes that he did commit and how he came to commit them and that, you know, the the evolution of the yeah. tricking that girl into getting into, into mm -hmm. his car. I, all of that is is really that was really remarkable. And I would have had a different response. It's kind of like the Badlands thing. Mm -hmm. If I had not been led to believe that right. this was going to be about the investigation of the Green River Killer, because it's absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Um it might have been a more interesting movie experience for me. Right. It's not badly written, and the performances are it, actually it, pretty good. And I have to say, it's from a transitional period in TV movies. It was made for A&E in 2004, so it's a level up from, let's say, The Hillside Stranglers, which we watched, which was made for NBC in 1988, which was a dog. Wow, um, that was really about, was, yeah, Dick Crenna's wow. romance. No, it was... Yeah. Was it Dick Crenna? Dick Crenna. Yeah, yeah, his yeah. romance with that, that... With a woman they invented. Hotsy Totsy yeah. woman who was and not a part of the hair. story at all. Yeah. Just giant 80s hair. Just amazing. The killer was going to get caught in her 80s hair if she went He for almost it. did. He almost did. Um, ridiculous movie. We're not talking about actual victims here. We're talking about made-up people in a movie. Um, so there, there, it was a cut above, and I thought the execution... And I guess what the movie was trying for in the end was that what Bundy was saying was that I was able to get this one particular victim in the Pacific Northwest by pretending to have a, either a broken ankle or a sprained ankle by using fake crutches to get right. her to assist me to the car where I overpowered her. And, and we know from the Ridgeway story that he deceived the sex workers he hired once they got in his truck with the presence of children's toys and he would allow them to see pictures in his wallet of children so that he looked like a family man so that he could get them comfortable. The horrible quote from Ridgeway, which we didn't share last week, was, if you want to be a good killer, you have to be trustworthy. Ugh, God. So that's like the detail of the Night Stalker, Richard uh, Ramirez, going off crack so he could become a better murderer, which was something that leapt out of his biography. 
when yeah, I read it years I, ago. It is the thing that we were talking about some last week was the fact that he got away with it for so long because it would, nobody could conceive of him, even when he was arrested. Yeah. Nobody could conceive of him as being the the Green River Killer, one of the most prolific serial killers in history. Yeah. Like drooling, knuckle dragging, Mister Hyde types. Sure, absolutely, they're terrifying to begin with. Yes, and there's certainly plenty of criminals out there who fall into that particular category. But this is a, its own thing. Like yes, this right. kind of successfully committing a crime over and over and over again has to do with not being suspected for it. There's even a line in the movie, just like the one you just said, that they put in the line of, Car- uh, excuse me, the mouth of Carrie Elwes, where he says, the horror movie thing with the guy, giant guy with the meat cleaver may look good on screen, but that's not how it goes in real life, because he can't kill anybody. Yeah. They'll just run he away. He wouldn't run from Jason yeah. Voorhees. You right. know what I mean? Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Why is he wearing that hockey mask and carrying a machete? I gotta get out of here. Yeah. This can't be good. Crazy. Um, but I think it gets back to something we talked about some last week, and I know we've talked about it before, is this psychological awakening around these cases for people that, yeah, evil does not show up wearing a cape and having dripping fangs and all the things we just described, that there are people that judging someone by their outer appearance and their outer shell and even their immediately discernible behaviors is not necessarily a window into their soul. And, you know, it speaks again to the newness of all this as an actual science, as a division of psychology. But it also gets to something a a research contact said to me once when I was looking into this topic. And he said, you know, there really aren't that many serial killers. So the FBI doesn't actually devote an enormous amount of resources to them. They're horrible and they haunt our imagination when they pop up. But thank God they are not actually that many. Now, my caveat, which is more a line I would put in a character is that we know about a set number of serial killers, the ones who get caught, but we have an enormous number of unexplained disappearances in this country and in the world. And, okay. <laughs> How do but, you explain but the gap? I think that the thing that is that is noteworthy about that is being able to get away with it once mm-hmm. is a very different thing to be able to get, than being able to get away with doing it over and over right. and over again. Yeah. I think that explains the gap between the serial killer. I think most of the serial killers we are experiencing today kill all of their victims at the same time. Mm-hmm. They show up at School. Douglas Stoneman yeah. High School and kill, you know, mm-hmm. their entire all of the people that they're going to kill in their serial killer career because those people would not have had that kid who did the shooting at the Marjorie Douglas Stoneman, whatever mm-hmm. the name of it is, high school, that horrible um, massacre in Florida. He would not have had the wherewithal to do that more than once. He couldn't have gone to that high school, killed one person and then left, mm-hmm. gotten away with it and come back and killed another person. And, you know, one right. by one killed 17 people. He wouldn't have been able to sustain that more than likely, because yeah. he wouldn't have been able to have the wherewithal to get away with it more than once. You know, I think any number of people who are in the business, who we've interviewed over the years, have said most people are really stupid. Most criminals are really stupid. It's a bad decision made by somebody who's not, you know, making the best decisions with the best information. And so that's how they get caught. Well, and there's there are two hallmarks of one hallmark, excuse me, of both Bundy and Ridgeway which came up in both of these specials in various ways, which was the desire to be alone with the body after the murder. That was really weird. Which, if you have that horrible compulsion, 
that means you need to have a system developed of how you're eventually going to get rid of the body or the parts of the body you don't want around, which was the thing with the Dahmer case. Right. Um, so that's that speaks to you need to have a level of sophistication that's not that common. Right. But it also speaks to a distinction between the mass shooter and this type of criminal because there's a really heavily sexual component with both Bundy and Ridgeway. It's really gross. Well, it would almost have to be something that basic to drive somebody to keep doing this sort of thing over and over again. Like the the the, the guy who kidnapped all those women and kept him in his basement all oh, those God, years. Yeah. Like those things, that kind of drive to fuel that sort of commitment. Mm-hmm. You know, like the stuff we go through just to, I hate to conflate the two and I'm not trying to, but just to find somebody, date them and actually turn it into a long-term relationship is the only sort of comparable willingness that we show Mm -hmm. to the kind of commitment required to produce this sort of outcome. Right. Like you might have dated 70 people over the years in an Mm -hmm. effort to find the one who ultimately turns out to be the one. That's... That's a lot of commitment. That's a lot of effort. But the, do, you, do you think there's some benefit in seeing this from an addiction kind of compulsive behavior model? Because this was with Ridgway listening to the sheer number of victims and the frequency with which he did it. It was like, this was like smoking or drinking. Well, smoking. This was an addiction. Yeah. Because he found the woman of his dreams. He found the woman he truly loved. He said yeah. himself was the best thing, the smartest thing, the best thing that ever happened to him was marrying Judith, I think her name was. Judith, I, yes. Yeah, it was, that was the best thing in his life. And even after he found her, he still couldn't quit smoking. He couldn't quit doing this. There was a pause, a cessation, but ultimately the cravings it, came back. It took and it over. Did yeah. not, it did not satisfy what he needed. You know, but the, the idea of trying to silence and immobilize someone and turn them into a living doll, like it just jumped out at me because the, the parts of the Dahmer story, that's what he was after. He even wanted to zombify someone, you know. And I saw a kind of disturbing and gross special, which we didn't talk about, but I was looking at it as we were talking about the Billy Newton story and, and if there was a connection to Dahmer. Dahmer has, I don't want to call him a fan club, but there are tours that are given of the neighborhoods he stalked in Milwaukee. And the they interview the women. It's almost entirely women who feel some sort of affection for Dahmer, who say they identify with that desire of his to completely take possession of somebody and have them be his. And they say that suggests he was so lonely. He was so lonely. And, I, and it's like... Ugh. Well, <laughs> I don't I, know. I don't know about the loneliness, but I do understand. Like, I do see. I don't know that I understand, but mm-hmm. I can see from um, a writer's perspective, a, right? Or just from a human, you know, understanding human nature. Yeah. The that sort of when you, we see it in in Bill Cosby, that sort of desire to drug those women into their they have they are at a place where they're unable. Yeah to resist in any way. They are unable to say anything or do anything. There's no resistance. He's in complete control and he can have the experience he wants to have mm-hmm. without any sort of sort of response. There, there's even, I, I, I believe that I've read that, that it's true. I know it's been depicted in terms of, um, in fictionalized versions of men actually paying for an experience where a woman willingly goes into a controlled environment and is sedated and completely, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the men present are able to have their way with her Mm. without it being 
criminal because it's consensual. She's consenting to this. By being sedated in the first place. And then she's compensated, whatever, and they can do whatever they want to. Mm -hmm. I I don't necessarily understand it in terms of my own preference. If you're not going to be interested in other people, God made your right hand so it reaches almost to your knee. Why bother? Um, But... But but I do can see that that could be if that is your your kink if that is your desire that could be a motivating factor that then leads these people into this sort of really much darker way of exploring that fantasy. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? So I want to ask you a question. And I feel like we've kind of moved beyond the movie because we've mined it for all that was there. Well, since it had nothing to do with the Green River Killer, I can certainly see how we would, you know, sort of have moved on from there. I, I'm glad he was able to get Ted Bundy to confess to stuff, and I hope it made him feel better about his shitty career and his lousy book. Um, but, um, but yeah, sure, let's talk about other things. We have talked about a lot of serial killer cases in the course of this podcast. We're almost up to 200 episodes of this podcast. Not all of them about serial killers, but in the mix, we've had a lot of them. Has your opinion of them changed or your opinion of all the things we've been talking about today evolved as a result of our conversations about this type of predator? I have to say the thing that intrigues me the most about what we do is investigating the investigations. Mm-hmm. The investigations are far more intriguing to me yeah. than the crimes themselves. Like I have I people, my sister is not a fan of true crime. She mm-hmm. doesn't because you, and I could see that if it was about the crimes, right. if it was just about the crimes. My focus here and really in general is never about that. It's about the investigators. Even Wright murder mm-hmm. is about the investigators. Like Your novel, right. right Let's be clear. I, the, Promote the no- yourself well. My novel. Yeah, I'll the, do it for you. My murder mystery novel, yes. Wright murder, that is going to be the beginning of a series if I ever get around to fucking publishing yeah. the rest of it. Um, the, the, um, some of it's even written. Um, and recorded. And recorded. I As bet. audiobooks, yeah, so, right. Yeah, one yeah. day. One day it could even happen. Um, but that's about the investigation. Yes. Sherlock Holmes is about Sherlock Holmes. It's not about the crimes. Like Dr. Dr. Moriarty or whatever his name is, 
I don't really give a shit about, you know, like that's not the, that's not the intriguing part to me. Yeah. So to that extent, you know, it, it hasn't made me more interested in them. Mm -hmm. And I think probably the thing that if anything, getting some insight into what would drive them or mm -hmm. inspire them has been an interesting, like Lori Vallow. Mm. Yeah. You know, that's a serial killer. Yes. You know, and you can see that this is all about her engineering a life for herself that she wants. Yes. And she's such a psychopath, killing people to get them out of the way and access um, monies and mm -hmm. men and dicks and whatever else it is mm -hmm. she's going for doesn't seem like to her, because she's a psychopath, a, an inappropriate way of pursuing that. Killing somebody's wife because you want to fuck her husband doesn't seem problematic to her. Right, exactly. And so she bec becomes this hideous serial killer. And that, to me, that's a little more intriguing. I, I want to jump in because I think you've raised a really fascinating point by bringing up Lori Vallow. Lori Vallow uh, did all those things, and in order to justify them, she concocted or attached herself to a conspiracy theory and a delusion, a religiously motivated one. And I believe all serial killers do that to a certain degree, but the violent, the, the ones who get caught, the Bundys and all of them, I believe they are not entirely forthcoming with us about the extent of the delusion, the nature of the delusion, but I think there were flashes of Gary Ridgway doing that in his interviews. Well, I wanted to be the best killer in the world, so I had to kill as many people as possible. And then he would be crying about something else and whatever. But I think... They are all operating out of a, out of a self-invented delusion that seems coherent to them. And I think it's very that's very clear in Lori Vallow's case. You pointed out that it was very clear in Timothy McVeigh's case. You were the first person I ever heard talk about him as just a serial killer who used this radical political ideology as an excuse to go out and feed a desire to murder. And absolutely yeah. killed all of his victims the same day. And yeah. I think that's and I think that's even inspiring other wannabe serial killers to take a similar sort of stance. Yes. And it is competitive. That idea of killing the most and being the best or the biggest or the baddest or Jesus. whatever, I think is a part of people because they have divorced themselves from their own humanity, mm -hmm. you know, as they pursue this fantasy yeah. um, of themselves um, in the world. So, yeah, sure. Like, people put the heads of animals up on the walls of their house because they want to say, I've caught this many fish or I've killed this many buffaloes or whatever it is that they're trying to promote themselves. This is a sort of a way of doing that right. in much the same way. I think that, you know, the place that this leads, which is where I think we were going with it last week and maybe even earlier in this episode, is I want the science to save us. I think you're right. I want the act, the science to become more solid and sophisticated, more forensically driven, about and it would appear and, that is, yeah. you know, I don't know how fast, but it is happening. Yeah. And it is also separating, as we found with the um the 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 Robin Hill murders. What were those what was the uh the movie was called Devil's Knot. Devil's Knot, that's right. it. Um as with that that investigation, you know, that really was about the science. Actually, it didn't solve the crimes, but it at least prevented us from blaming them on people for being weird. That's the other thing yes. that I would like for us to get away from doing, the witch hunt motive of conviction. Like, I often see things where, even where it's, like, I, I, the Peterson case is always the, mm -hmm. Lacey Peterson case is always like, I absolutely believe that that man killed his wife. There is right. there is just no doubt in my mind 
like, I guess they, they could turn out that somebody else did it or those people from across the street or whatever, but they absolutely did not prove it. Mm-hmm. In that case, and he should not have gone to jail for it because you should have to, there should be a different standard mm-hmm. of proof. You should have to reach a certain threshold right. before you're even able to take somebody to trial. I, 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 I tend to agree with you, and I think it gets to some uh, another point I want to talk about that ties into Ted Bundy, and it's the thing Ted Bundy did that drove me the most insane because I remember it. I was old enough to watch him do it on TV, which was the night before his execution. He did an interview with James Dobson, uh, had a focus on the family, a hugely homophobic and anti-gay figure Hideous who funded man. most of the campaign against Prop 8 here in California, or in favor of Prop 8, excuse me. Horrible uh, person. Horrible person. Um, and he tried to make the case the night before his execution that he committed his word at murders because of exposure to pornography. And there was a period in history, and again, it speaks to the infancy of the analysis of serial killers, where... In, a use of pornography was seen as a direct indicator of sexual violence. And oh let me God. tell you something. Everybody would be dead. We if would that all was be true. dead. We have so much porn now. We have so much less shame in the consumption of it, in the production of it, that you can no longer see any discernible connection between it and violence. But religious bigots are always out there trying to reaffirm this old, tired, disproved narrative because they want to uh, legislate and police people's other people's bodies regardless of whether or not they're members well, of their religion or not. People want a simplistic explanation for everything. Yeah, because exactly. Because complicated explanations, you know, require effort and um, ambiguity and yes. an exception, a willingness to accept that we don't always, in fact, we rarely know the reasons for stuff happening, the causality and it behind be- things. And it becomes really primal here because what people really want is tell me if the monster's coming for me. Tell me how to avoid the monster. Sure. And the monsters themselves will often say, there's no telling. Like Richard Ramirez said, if I wanted to get you, I could get you. I would just wait. You know, like I would lie and wait, I would figure it out. But if a killer wants you, they're going to get you. And nobody wants to hear that. And nobody wants to hear you can't see them coming or predict them or identify them on sight. In the the documentary about the Green River Killer, yes, which this movie is not about, no, but um, which last week's documentary was, there is an interview with the sister of the first victim. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the last morning that she saw her sister. And she says she tried to convince her sister to stay until her father came back so they could have breakfast together. And then her father could take her and drop her off where she was headed. And if she had done that, mm-hmm. she would not have been the first victim. Right. The reason she was the first victim was because she left the house at that moment. If you could actually say breakfast Mm -hmm. becomes the most important meal of the day, right? Right. Like breakfast will save your life. Yeah. Like that would be the simplistic takeaway from that, like saying it's pornography. Like breakfast, breakfast, if if you would just stay in for breakfast, you won't be killed by a serial killer. Like that would be the ludicrous, oversimplistic description. And it, but it speaks to the complete randomness of the way in which most of life unfolds. I make a decision mm-hmm. to go left or I make a decision to go right, and it literally changes my life. We're not really aware of that in the moment, but it does. Right, exactly. But, I mean, what you just pointed out is correlation, not causation. Am I getting that right? Like where something is simultaneous with something else, but it is not the cause of the other thing. It's like when Jonelle did the um, the bed death. <laughs> right. Um, I, the, appeal for for Mm -hmm. fundraising or for that committee or whatever because most of us die in bed so 
So bad is bad the cause of death? No, it isn't. Yeah. So like if you stay out of bed, this warm, comfortable killer, um, if you stay out of bed, Joan you L. won't Sam's, die. If you're confused, Joan L. Sam's was our relationship expert on The Dinner Party Show, which you can find at thedinnerpartyshow.com. Many of her installments were her sage wisdom about her decades-long marriage to Olson LePew, or was that is that Olson? I'm forget. I'm trying to give too much origin story, but go listen to Jonelle. Yeah, She's a genius. Jonelle was one of our uh, was our relationship reporter who right. had a, uh, been perfectly married to an ideal in an ideal relationship for many years to a gay man who wanted nothing to do with her. But she had no idea. Had her own boyfriend, and she was completely oblivious to it. But she also was, you know, a big proponent of raising money to help prevent bed death. Because right. Beds kill people, and that's. Right. But it's the idea of the erroneous causality. It's, one thing has nothing to do with the other. A comet passes by, and a king dies. So you can tell the king's going to die because there was a comet. Like, no, that yeah. those things are not actually related. They just happened at the same time. And, yeah, and I think that's the temptation with sort of simplistic answers mm -hmm. to complicated questions. We have become a society driven by. 120 characters versus six volumes. Right, yeah. Because we don't want to take the time to understand the actual question that we are asking. We yeah. just want a quick, easy answer that's easily digestible and and fits into a 30-second spot. Okay, but there's I think there's also another part of that, which is that people are determined to get answers to things that are not actual common threats that I think we're exposed to a lot of it. Like, I am a classic example of this. I am afraid of all the wrong things. Like, I've, I was reading some evolutionary biologists who said if, if our brains were rational, if our fear centers were rational and not primitive, there we would be way more afraid of electric sockets than we are of heights. Most of us encounter heights in situations where we have guardrails and we have things, but we continue to have a primitive cave person scaling the side of a mountain reaction to heights. Similar with snakes. Most of us are not encountering venomous snakes the way we used to when we were primitive people, but we still, a lot of us, me way included, wow. yeah, have this reaction. Yeah. But we have not yet developed a logical, immediate visceral, visceral reaction. And I can't remember the other thing they mentioned. It was electrical sockets and something. It was probably riding in a car, <laughs> which you're terrified of. So you're you're way more evolved, Eric Shockwin. Well, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an actual threat. Like, right. But I, the thing that I always say is that, you know, fear is a complete waste of time because it's not ever going to be the thing you're afraid of it turns out to be the thing. <laughs> like you will have no time to actually be afraid of the thing that actually turns <laughs> turns out to be the thing. If if it turns out to be the piano that falls right. from the uh, the high the high story right. in the building that smushes you on the sidewalk, you're going to have like 30 seconds of time to be afraid of right. that piano maybe, but probably if you did, you could step out of the way, probably you won't see it coming. So fear is almost a complete waste of time. Having a healthy respect for you know, whitewater rapids or the ledge at the edge of the building or mm -hmm. sticking a bobby pin into a wall socket or even, you know, riding in a car, wear your seatbelt, drive defensively, you know, be aware, be situationally aware. Like those things are wise choices because there is an increased level of risk there. But fear is a waste of time because... Yeah. The, the ultimate, if there's anything that's going to be happening, it's like I always say, if the plane's going down, there is nothing I can do about it. If you yeah. could put me in the cockpit of an airplane, I could be there 
all afternoon. It would go down faster. Oh my God, it would crash much faster because I because you would be like, "Where is there tea?" And you would turn around and hit the pilot's yoke. Absolutely, and it would down, yes, it down, would down never, the plane. I would, would go. Yeah, because I have no idea how to fly a plane. Yes, absolutely. I, but you know, I, I love that you, in the face of that, you can maintain a certain degree of calm and serenity, whereas some people accept that and end up in an institution because it's a lot for them to take. Yeah. Because that's the, the, the desire for the simple answer. Yeah. Like it is, it's a lot to take on. Life is a terminal event and we don't know what that means or how it plays out or whatever. And it is the source of pretty much all of our fears. And right. yet it is the destination we are all headed for inexorably um, as a, nobody gets out of this alive. So yeah. I, you can be afraid of it if you want to, but it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So you know, you could save a lot of time by just going, yep, that's, I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen at some yeah. point. And I'm going to try, I'm going to do my best for quality of life and to, yeah. you know, not join the Darwin uh, candidates by making choices about things that Attaching are Attaching a jet engine to the roof of your car, <laughs> which was my favorite Darwin <laughs> award ever. I really, I feel bad for the guy, but like, how did you see that playing out? Oh my God, that is okay. really, okay. So I'm gonna wrap Off up, topic. I'm gonna wrap this up uh, with one last stab at Gary Record, the fraudster who has built his political career on the false narrative that he solved the Green River case. This ties into an issue that's been in the news lately that we haven't talked about much. But when asked why he was against abortion, he said to an interviewer, I have a great respect for life. I've seen a lot of death in my career. Worked Green River. Seen lots of dead bodies. So his response to working a case that was about the repeated murder of underage female sex workers is to force women to carry pregnancies to term. Please keep that in mind if you live in Washington State. The other thing I think that is the takeaway from this is um, there is no reason to watch the movies The Riverman <laughs> or The Capture of the Green River Killer. Yes. Both of them are just fictional bullshit that has nothing to do with either of these crimes. These are this they're both uh, lies and deception and self-justification and the the desire of Reichert and Kepler to take credit for stuff that they had absolutely nothing to do with mm -hmm. um, and are in no way about the Green River Killer or the investigation that ultimately uh, captured him. So, yeah, so we would we can definitely say these two movies, both the movies we considered yes. um, for this particular topic are, you know, just have nothing to do with it and are a, a pack of lies. And we think that this topic, because this is the most prolific serial killer maybe in history or so far that we can figure out um, if we don't count people who start wars and, yes. you know, rulers of countries that yeah. wipe out hundreds of people. Like, if we don't count those people, um, this is would seem to be really ripe for an actual movie about mm -hmm. this investigation. Maybe David Fincher, who did direct the one movie that yeah. <laughs> we've done. I don't know if that, that was, was part it. of it. Like, is, I don't know that any of the rest of the movies we've even no. covered had anything to do with the actual investigation. And there was stuff that Fincher was like, mm, okay, I think you're making a mm -hmm. decision here, but um, but at least he was... Not this decision. But at least yeah. he was using the facts right. to put forth his own hypothesis of who the murderer was um, mm -hmm. in, the, in the, uh, the Zodiac killings. 
But none of the rest of the movies we've seen, particularly this one, I, um, have anything to do with the actual and investigation. I, I think we could do a whole podcast about that conversation. What is your responsibility? Because I'll, I'll tell you something, and I think this is probably true of your work as well. Like, I'm inspired by a lot of real cases, but if I take dramatic liberties with them, I don't walk around wearing the bumper sticker saying the book is based on a real-life case. Like, we pull from real life all the time, but if you go that far afield of the facts, you have a responsibility to to not promote yourself as some window into a real story, particularly a crime story with real victims and real killers who may have may not been brought to justice it's just uh, yeah and i think it's also worth noting with the, the exception of this lying asshole david <laughs> reichert who gary. actually gary i think it's gary reichert is that it let's see no no you're right it's dave the other one's gary dave and gary gary's both the murderer liars. yeah um is the uh where he actually made the movie to um promote his lies right. um I think a lot of the times the people promoting the movie and the people making the movie are not the same people. Right. And so some of this may be the result of the marketing department seeing that as a way to rip from the headlines as a way of selling something that ultimately in these cases are actually really bad movies. And Um, what you have to do now, though, and I think this is an advancement, we complain a lot about social media, is if you claim ripped from the headlines, you need to answer to Facebook TikTok, whatever the fuck Twitter is now, and our podcast, and this fucking podcast, and these two bitches right here. Right. Um, Okay, so we thought we would wrap up the true crime movie time summer film festival with a little bit of a a lighter story, a story that floats a bit, a story that goes up into the air. That's as far as I can take that. We're going to be doing, it's also a Pacific Northwest story. I don't know if it's a nightmare. As opposed to kicking off with, uh, yeah, okay. The Mystery of D.B. Cooper. That is the True Crime TV Club we are doing next week. It is also streamable on Max, HBO Max, Max, HBO Max. Um, And we will be following that up with the discussion of the movie starring Robert Duvall and Treat Williams, The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. That is our next pairing, and it is our final pairing in the True Crime Movie Time Summer Film Festival. (laughs) So if you've been dying for this to be over with, (laughs) you've got two more weeks, babe, and then we'll, I don't know, have to think of some other excuse for making a podcast. But it'll still be, you know, the True Crime TV Club, so we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. But we'll stop doing this film festival thing and uh, come up with something new to do. We're coming up on our 200th episode, but you wouldn't know it. We don't know how we're coming up on it because apparently I numbered the episodes wrong again in our cheat sheet. Yeah, we'll never know, but apparently we're coming up on our two. We need a numbers guy. We need. We do. We do. We're gonna a hire somebody just, to keep up with or a those gal, numbers. a yeah. person. This is one ninety four. I'm being told by the booth by the numbers guy that we actually have. So I was off by one in our cheat sheets. Okay. Yeah. Top flight but operation. Yes. Yeah. DB Cooper is. Kind of an interesting crime case. It's not really our typical fare. It's not about a murder. It's about, but it's about a very well-known crime. Yes, but let me tell you something. I was ready to have like maybe a, just a few less murders after the run we've had. We've yeah. done a lot of fucking yeah. murders. And this this one particularly, the Green River Killer, though this, this movie has didn't really touch on it. Um, the Ted Bundy thing was certainly very. He was very prolific, and the Green River. My God, it was just the brutality and the extensiveness and the the number of 
of deaths that, yeah, it is. So, yeah, we thought maybe to wrap up the summer, to roll into the Labor Day and into the fall. Fly into the fall with its mystery of D.B. Cooper. All right, so that's uh, that's next week. And until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.